0: Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dispatches from the Front. This is episode number 15. We are recording this on July 14th, 2019. And this episode we are covering the World War II film, Fury. I'm Tim, and joining me as usual is Major Tom Harper. Tom, how are you this morning?
1: I'm good, and I feel like folks listen and they're waiting for you to to say that i've been replaced on the show and then they let out a cheer and then but instead you say <laughs> that i'm still here and they, oh.
0: <laughs> he's still around replace why, why would we replace you
1: because that's the way of the military right you grow a little long in the tooth they bring in somebody newer younger and better to replace you it's just the way of the circle of life it, it could be <laughs> And it, it, could it be. would be on brand for the show. You know, it's a military podcast, so, you
0: know. <laughs> Tom's been reassigned. Uh... and <laughs> Yeah, he's been PCS'd to
1: this other podcast, quote-unquote. I'm like Creed in the office where he like starts that blog and they tell him it's posted to the internet and it's just a word file. That he types into. <laughs> yeah, don't worry, it'll that recording will be up tomorrow. Okay,
0: that's right. That's right.
1: <laughs> right in the gar, Right in the recycle bin.
0: Then we bring in a rotation of TD Wide hosts. That's uh, right. <laughs> some of them, you know, with veering specialties, that you know,
1: all, all with far more talent. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <clears throat> no, no, Tom. You are you are irreplaceable, my friend. Irreplaceable. <laughs> you're 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 stuck here with me.
1: But to your question, I am good. I am I'm good. This is uh I'll I'll have some comments on Fury at toward the end when we give our final thoughts. But this is a movie that when we decided to record it, I was really glad <clears throat> because unlike I feel like so far we've done movies that have are either classics like Saving Private mm, Ryan mm-hmm. or will probably have that status, you know, in a, a few years down the line, yeah. Black Hawk down, maybe we were soldiers. I don't know, but this is one. I, it's probably, it, it, it is the most recent film that we've done yeah, yeah. 2014 release date. And I've only seen it once before watching it to prep for the show and i wasn't sure how i felt about it mm-hmm. so i really wanted to get the chance to to watch it again cuz i don't own it and uh, i was i was glad to get the chance to watch it again i i'll share my thoughts overall with that second experience at the end though
0: cool very good
1: you got to stay around to the bottom of the cereal box to get the prize that's right
0: that's right <laughs> yeah fury is a fury's an interesting movie i'm i'm you know along with a lot of things in in world war 2 uh tank combat is one of the things that tends to kind of fascinate me and it's you know very interesting now than uh, or it's very different now than what it was then i mean it's you know we're we're going to talk about some of the the tanks uh involved in this film the things that we see you know but now everything is is computer it's all computerized i mean yes there's an absolute lot of uh talent and decision making and that kind of stuff that goes into crewing a tank now, but you know, you've got, uh, they have, you know, guided shells now guided artillery. They've got, uh, uh you know, computer supported targeting, that kind of stuff. And in world war two, it was, uh, you know, there, there was no computer supported targeting. It was basically looking through a scope, just like looking down the iron sights of a rifle. And that's how you're shooting. Uh, that's how you're shooting the, the, the cannon on these things. And, you know you're having to mentally account for your speed, your target speed, terrain, environmental factors, all that kind of stuff. And uh, it really, really fascinating stuff and and how they're built and why they're built in certain ways and how they're armored. And you know the 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 Navy likes to to talk quite a bit about that close quarters living. Uh, on ships, especially submarines, because they're even more compact. And we really see from this movie, especially the the couple of times, that Fury is is literally called home because these guys live in their tank. And um, that kind of close quarters living is uh, really just kind of like a subculture unto itself. And, and tankers really are a, 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 a subculture uh, w- within the Army, and especially at this point in time where a lot of it was really evolving and kind of coming into its own. So, And, and I thought yeah, they brought I, out a fair amount of that in this movie. Definitely. The
1: thing that I guess I thought a little bit about and reflected on is because of all everything you're talking about it makes for objectively a good story because you've got a a small crew effect a, a, a small character base mm-hmm. for for a movie or a TV show that's in in most cases tightly knit because of all the time that they're spending together um you see that in terms of some a lot of the air combat movies that have been out, I, Memphis Bell comes to mind, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Where you've got a bomber crew, and you've got a lot of air combat movies that are out there that that have... Uh, I, I think the attraction for filmmakers is because it's this uh, ready-made group of characters that you can tell a story around. But there's not a whole lot of movies out there about armored combat. No. Uh, you know, in fact, I can't... I, I'm going just racking my brain right now fury may be the only modern movie i say modern like from from 1980 on that comes to my mind immediately that's exclusively about armored combat or you know a a tank crew yeah in any any war um and so it but it's just interesting to me because i like it, it sets up well for you would think for a story to be told around it whether you're making up sort of a fictional crew like you have here in fury where you're telling the real story mm-hmm. of a tank crew. Yeah. And I think the other side of that is even though uh, tank combat, as we'll talk about it, it was explicitly brutal here. I mean, it, don't think for a moment that these guys were somehow more protected than <laughs> the, the average infantry soldier or something like that, just because they were riding around in armor. Yeah. They uh, really just become armored so,
0: targets. Because yeah, they stand exactly. out when, so much,
1: and and then you're you're trapped in that box when that when that round penetrates the armor mm-hmm. and burns through. So, but even the life expectancy. So if even if you say, well, hey, you know, people aren't making these stories because not a lot of tank crews survived the war. I mean, it's a high fatali- fatality rate. But the same thing. I would say the same thing about some of these, all the the bomber crews and and mm-hmm. whatnot. You know. So I, who knows? I I'd, I'd like to see more movies like this. Yeah. Um. Because I think there's some, there's a lot of interesting stories out there about it. Uh, this one happens to be, and we'll talk about it toward the end. Sort of a, it borrows from a lot of real life stories, right? But isn't, it, it's not a true story of a single tank crew or any any particular character.
0: Yeah. Well, so let's get into it. Um, this movie, as you mentioned, was uh, done in 2014, released in October, wide release. Both written and directed by David Ayer, who. Even if you're not familiar with the name, uh, you may have seen or at least heard of a lot of the stuff that he's done. Um, he did uh, films like End of Watch, Suicide Squad, Training Day, and Bright. Uh, Training Day is one of my favorite movies. I absolutely love that movie. Uh, for those who haven't seen it, that's more of a law enforcement-oriented uh, film, and it is just fantastic. It's really gritty. It's uh, it's a pretty hardcore film. Um, and... It, a lot of the stuff. I mean, you look at Training Day. You look at Bright. You look at Suicide Squad. Squad. Uh, End of Watch. I don't remember End of Watch. I don't know that I've ever seen it.
1: Michael Pena's in that. That was. I oh, think it's okay. Jake Gyllenhaal and Michael Pena. They're they're a couple young police officers. Oh, okay. in All right. L.A. If I'm not mistaken, very good movie. So brutal, but very good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, so clearly David Ayer likes things. Uh, he likes the, the, the police and military oriented uh, genres. He, his films have definitely a much darker tone to them. Um, not only in story, but also in their actual visualization. Uh, there's not a lot of like, you know, really bright lighting. Uh, in, in a lot of these films, a lot of the, the action takes place at night or low light conditions and that kind of stuff. So he, he definitely has a particular thing that he does and, and that he gravitates toward. Uh, and I think he does it very well. I mean, there's some really, really compelling stuff. And, you know, when you've got fire and explosions and tracer rounds and that kind of stuff in the night, that makes it more compelling to watch. It makes it a heck of a lot more exciting, and you're really on the edge of your seat, uh, wondering what's going to happen next. So, uh, Tom, we, we I know we've already kind of talked about the general concept of the movie, but get us a little bit more into the plot. What what happens here?
1: Yeah, so we're set in late World War II in in 1945, actually. And if if you're broadly familiar. Uh, the war, at least against Germany, ends that April. So you're talking the last few months. Allied forces, as the movie starts, are making their final push through Germany towards Berlin. And while the German army has taken heavy losses at this point, the Allied uh, forces are not getting any—things uh, are not getting easier for them. They f- are facing some of the most fanatical resistance yet as they push deeper into the country— and as the movie begins, Hitler has issued an order that every man, woman, and child in Germany arm up to fight off the attackers, the invaders. And the movie centers on Staff Sergeant Don Wardaddy Collier. He commands a Sherman Easy 8 tank named Fury. And uh, he, he oversees a battle-hardened crew, which has seen heavy action together. The crew served together since North Africa but has just lost its veteran assistant driver-slash-bow gunner, Red, as the movie begins. Private Norman Ellison, a a typist clerk, suddenly gets assigned to the crew to replace Red, even though he has no experience or training in tanks. And The crew takes on from there a series of increasingly dangerous missions, as Private Ellison struggles to both survive and come to terms with his new assignment, as well as the crew, who seemingly doesn't care whether he lives or dies. Once Private Ellison gains their trust, things culminate in a massive battle against an entire bat- battalion of deadly S- German SS troops.
0: Yeah, the the progression of this is really interesting. I mean, you you see War Daddy as this like really hard NCO, and but that's all. A lot of it's very very superficial. He really you see a lot of moments where he really does care about his crew in this. And and I, I think we'll we'll get into it a little bit more as we talk about some of the, the um some of the actual scenes in this, but he's not the hard ass that he always portrays himself to be, necessarily. Uh he really does care about his men and, and he certainly knows his shit. I mean it's uh the, the, the one interaction between him and uh Captain Wagner when the captain says, Yeah, I, I I know who you are and I know what you can do. I need you to go do it. <laughs> you know, so his, his reputation uh is definitely out there. It's it's pretty interesting. So we talked a little bit about tank warfare. Uh and, and again, tank warfare in World War II was definitely different than what it is now, even though Really, modern day, we haven't seen all-out tank warfare. And and for for anyone who might be up on some of this stuff, I mean, there's even some discussion of largely eliminating tanks from our arsenal because the technology has advanced so much that the perceived effectiveness of mobile armor in a... Battlefield is negated by our ability to essentially launch shit from sitting here in central New York uh, to any point in the world. And, you know, I, I, I don't know. I'm not so sure about it. I, I, I think that armor is, is still a fantastic support in the field uh, for infantry. And we've seen a lot of really solid effectiveness of it in, uh, in Iraq. Even though it wasn't hugely tested since the Iraqi army uh, basically collapsed in front of us, which was outstanding. But you know maybe that's also part of the uh, part of the arsenal of the modern tank, uh, well, actually of any tank, I, I, even going back to World War I, was the psychological impact of seeing a tank. To infantry and immediately making people throw white flags up because holy shit, this thing looks mean and impossible to beat, and we're not going to fight it. So, yeah, and there, I, what's
1: interesting is that some of that that thought process is reactionary based on the type of combat we've faced mm-hmm. the last fifteen, eighteen, nearly twenty years you know because you know folks will point to hey we we've we fought these counterinsurgency battles where is where's the need for a tank when you're fighting house to house building to building mm-hmm. uh or or in an insurgency type situation you're 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 either not able to effectively use the armor for what it's designed for yep. or we're not facing even near peer counterparts right you know a tank's o- expensive overkill mm-hmm. effectively or it's just a big target that, that is not all that effective. Yeah. And there's been a shift, I would say, the last three to five years where the the Army has has tried to pivot back to preparing more for a near-peer type war mm-hmm. where, you know, if you go out to the National Training Center or down to JRTC at Fort Polk, uh, the, the focus has really shifted more to these uh large force type encounters that you know that if if we're not if our skills to fight appear including a peer that that wields uh, you know effective armor or technologically advanced armor and stuff like that atrophies and you know we we become an army that's exclusively uh, there to fight counterinsurgencies what's going to happen inevitably right. when when the next conflict comes up against uh, you know an actual nation state mm-hmm. Whether China, Russia, whoever you want to pick, um, and so I, it, that's been a real interesting shift. It's been a good shift for for armor because you know now all of a sudden, um, when they're not being parked at the National Mall in Washington D.C., they've they've got some business to <laughs> to be involved in. Um, but it's good. It's it's been a a heartfelt or like a, a good change, I think, from from the standpoint of the. Of folks that are that are on the ground actively serving especially if uh your your armor branch and uh it's just interesting i I remember for years you saw nothing but desert camo paint yeah on it's just you know the brown desert paint on all this armor and now you go around bases and you see that traditional foliage pattern Mm -hmm. on there and it's it's so funny uh to, to see um it's almost like you're rolling back the clock in some ways, yeah. and it's been a tough shift. I, it was a tough gear shift to get into the insurgency type mindset, and it's it's been a uh, a gear shift to go back to it. But I think it's a good one um, overall because it's uh, that's just an indispensable skill. Yeah, I, I think the um, the moron that officially gets rid of armor in the United States Army is going to be somebody that's got a lot to answer for <laughs> once the next war happens.
0: Yeah. But. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, and I, you know, and, and tanks now are just huge boxes of technology. The amount of stuff that's in them and a lot of capability. I I think armor has learned a lot from aviation, with a lot of the advanced sensor packages and uh, both offensive and defensive capability that they have now. I mean, tanks are employing you know shaft and other disruptive technologies for, you know, if they're targeted by some kind of, uh, you know, guided missile system. Absolutely amazing. Amazing stuff. But focusing on the World War II stuff, uh, it's still some incredible armored beasts that we were seeing, but very different technology-wise than, um, than than what we have now. On the Allied side, uh, kind of the ubiquitous tank, which we see in... The vast majority of World War II films was the Sherman. And the Sherman was deployed both European theater and Pacific theater. It was kind of the general, uh, you know, armored workhorse of the Allies, uh, especially of the Americans. I mean, it was kind of the K-Car of American armor. I mean, there were a bunch of different versions of it that were done with some slightly different capability, but by and large, the, the profile of it was the same. Uh, the general look and feel of it was the same. And then similarly on the German side, their workhorse over there was the Tiger One. Um, there was in fact a Tiger Two, it was also called the King Tiger, uh, which was developed by the Germans late in the war. And very fortunately, they did not get a chance to have high scale production of it. I think they only hit like, I don't know, maybe forty some out of them that they actually got into production, uh, which was good because it was a very imposing tank. The Tiger One was was a significant challenge for for Allied armor, and the Tiger Two even more so. But the Tiger One was kind of again the, the German workhorse in in terms of their armor. And, uh, and, and and it was feared. I, it was kind of the, the perfect formula. And there's a lot of things that go into armor. It's, it's not just the gun and the size of the gun, but how much armor, actual you know physical plate armor and, and the type of armor that these tanks have, where they carry that armor. And, and we see some of that kind of play out in this film uh, where probably, I don't know, whatever it was, the uh, late in the second act where it was the tiger against four Shermans. The tiger eliminates three of them, and then it's just Fury dueling with this tiger. And Fury knows the only way that they can actually penetrate the armor of this tiger isn't back. Um, And, you know, armor on a tank is is kind of trying to find the right balance between weight and the horsepower of their engine. Too much weight, and obviously they're going to be slower, they're going to get stuck, they're going to have a lot of issues... So they have to balance where their armor is. So most of their armor is in front. They have significant armor also on the sides and they sacrifice armor in the back. Um, and not only because of that, but also the engines tend to be in the back and they need to have the ability to dissipate heat. Otherwise the engines will overheat. So you again have to have lighter armor back there so they can, so they can make that happen. So there, there's a lot of formulation that goes into armor and yeah, uh, you know, I mean, German engineering is 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 famous for what it can accomplish, and the Tiger I was really, uh, I, I think, the pinnacle of that for for World War II.
1: And the Sherman that they use in the movie, or that that Fury is portrayed as, is a uh, an up cannon version of it. So same sort of base model, but the uh, it instead of wielding a, a the standard seventy five millimeter cannon that had had been stand stock standard on a, a Sherman since the original M4 model uh this one wielded a 76 mm cannon which was impor- it seems like a small difference uh but the this uh the, the original Sherman cannon could not penetrate tiger frontal armor at any range mm-hmm. and at least the 76 mm still didn't have a great shot at it but at least at at a closer distance uh you know, if you got a good shot on it, there was a chance that you could penetrate there, and the, well, I guess we'll talk about this, but you know, you see that in in Fury mm-hmm. as they engage and and put a round off the front of front of that thing, um, but it's interesting. I'm glad that they went with the Sherman as opposed to to uh, number one because it it's just such an iconic tank. Yeah. In in any conflict, but also because it's it's a vulnerable tank. Yeah. This is not, as we talked about it at the beginning, this is not a, uh, a rolling fortress mm-hmm. and it's certainly not something like the Pershing that, that had the ability to, to punch a hole on a tiger yeah. at distance. I mean, this is, uh, this is a tank that's not incredibly fast. I mean, I think it's, it's top speed is uh, what? 20, 23, 25 miles an hour, something like that. Probably. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a relatively small tank. Yeah. And, uh, with a a tight, confined, like very austere crew space. Mm -hmm. So I think it just sets up perfectly to to be its own character in the story.
0: Yeah, I mean, the Sherman was really ideally a good infantry support tank. It was not really built for armor-on-armor combat, um... So, but that's what the utility of it really came to be, and and because it was smaller, it did have some better maneuverability than we saw from heavier armor, and and, and like you said, I mean there there were tanks that the Allies put out there that could counter the Tiger, uh, but those are bigger and slower and more expensive and more difficult to deploy and all that stuff. So, the the Sherman really became uh, very utilitarian. And, you know, you mentioned the di- the different rounds and kind of that impenetrability of, of the tiger. Nothing. I, I, I think the biggest pucker factor in this whole movie was whenever a round ricocheted. Yeah.
1: That, that's something you don't even need to know anything about anything, oh. but to, to watch a tank fire around and it ricochet off of another tank you you know it's like an oh shit moment. it's unmatched by anything
0: oh it totally (laughs) is i mean it's just uh, it it, and again especially because you know some of these they, they emphasize tracer rounds in this so you could actually see these rounds go off and just the sound that it made and and that you know careening off of the armor when it happened and you know of, of course depending on on who's firing on who you know when the ricochet goes off the shermans it's like oh you know you have a bit of relief but still it's like really intense and then when it goes off the tiger it's like damn <laughs> they just cannot <laughs> penetrate that thing so uh really really challenging um yeah i i could go on about armor for a long time i'm i'm absolutely fascinated by it um we have a great cast For this film, uh, Brad Pitt uh, plays our lead, uh, Sergeant Collier, War Daddy. Shia LaBeouf, who, uh, what was his thing? He's no longer famous. Was that his thing from a few years ago?
1: He's he's given up fame. I don't know. Where he wore like a paper
0: bag over his head or something.
1: His character in this movie, I like. He didn't have to act like he's just that weird. Like this, <laughs> this is probably, yeah. His character name in the movie, well, his nickname is is Bible. And I feel like if you just approach Shia LaBeouf on a given day, like maybe a random Wednesday, this would just be him. Like he's just acting like this now.
0: <laughs> it's it's so interesting because the the. <sighs> how the characters were portrayed in this movie and again you consider these the the close quarters that they had to live and and work within they were so starkly opposed to each other so entirely different which you saw some conflict amongst them but by and large they they worked together and i think it's because they knew they were dependent They all depended on each other for survival. I mean, you look at the roles within the tank. You've got a commander. You've got a driver. You've got an assistant driver. uh, You've got your loader. I mean, so every single role of a tank crew is absolutely critical. And if you lose one, you're really screwed. I mean, there, there are essential functions that just don't happen. So it was really interesting to see these conflicting personalities deal with each other. And yeah, Shia LaBeouf playing Bible was he was one of those guys, like you constantly rolled your eyes at the stuff he was saying, but then he goes and does something that's like really meaningful for the crew. And, and it, it was interesting. It was yeah. interesting. Yeah. Uh, Michael Pena, who we oftentimes see in, in, in comedic roles and he's an outstanding comedian, uh, plays Gordo and Gordo still had some comedic moments in, in, in this movie. Also, uh, I, I, <laughs> You know, one of his more notable ones early on, after uh, Private Ellison joins him, is they're they're going down the road and they see the the girl on the bicycle, and he's like, "Yeah, she'll fuck you for a candy bar," <laughs> uh, and it's just you know, kind of this out there type of thing, and then of course Bible and, and ends up. Uh, um, you know, basically uh, lashing out against Gordo for saying it and, you know, for uh, blasphemous comments that uh, will, will displease Jesus. And uh, they just really, really interesting. Um, John Bernthal, who a lot of folks know uh, from Walking Dead or from the uh, Punisher uh, series, the Marvel series that was done on Netflix, uh, plays Kunas, who is... I, th- 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 Tom, I, how in the world would you describe Kunas? <laughs>
1: <laughs> he, he's like, if you took, if you boiled down Bernthal's character in The Walking Dead, like if he was never, if he just never wandered out of like the North Georgia woods and mm-hmm. joined the police or the sheriff's department yeah. there, uh, that would be Kunas. Yeah, I will say his haircut in this movie, uh, looks about like a haircut you would get at the post exchange. You, know, you pay your seven bucks, you come out looking like coon ass.
0: Yeah, yeah, he's very, um, very much what you'd expect, like redneck GI. I mean, he's yeah. kind of like the you know you 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 look that up and his picture comes up on here. Uh, we mentioned Private Ellison a couple times, uh, largely just referred to by his first name Norman. Uh, played by Logan Lerman, is, who's an actor I'm not really familiar with. I, Tom, would you? He's
1: been in the. I haven't watched much of it, but the Percy Jackson and the Young Olympians movies. Okay. I think that's where he got his start. But he's born in 92, so he's a younger actor.
0: Yeah, yeah. He he does a great job in this. And, you know, really, is a, there's a lot of fish out of water with him. He, he mentions, you know, basically, hey, I was just a type clerk working out of a headquarters. And. They stuck me in armor. I think uh, John Bernthal Kunas asked him, he's like, hey, you know, you you go to tank school? He's like, no, I've never even been in one. (laughs) And so, I mean, truly, they have to like give him an orientation to here's how a tank works and here's your job. And, you know, by the way, here's a, you know, go get a bucket of water because you got to wash the blood out of your seat really uh yeah very very fish out of water and and clearly he's never even been in in combat and you know every soldier's an infantryman and he certainly had that training from from basic but beyond basic he's he's never seen anything that even looked like combat
1: he's like the private opum of this movie yes op-um from saving private ryan yeah. oh yeah absolutely <laughs> Except he didn't try to bring his typewriter along to the (laughs)
0: channel. Get rid of that crap. Uh, And then the other notable in here is Jason Isaacs, uh, who, you know, we see in in everything from, um, uh, um, oh, gosh, uh, Harry Potter movies to the Patriot, the Patriot to, uh, gosh, I mean, yeah, a lot of really, really great movies, incredible actor. Uh, He plays Captain Wagner, who has uh, maybe three appearances in the movie but he's basically the catalyst for, you know, here's Fury's next mission. And and it works out well. So so Tom, walk us through here. I mean, we we saw a really kind of gritty scene that this movie opened up with again. It was it was dark, there's a lot of fire, there's a lot of destroyed armor, dead infantry, dead horses and Wagons blown up and that kind of shit, and uh, you see this this German officer on horseback coming in, and and so that's kind of how we get introduced to this film, and it's it's a really neat opening scene.
1: Yeah, it's. I think it dispels with any notion right away that there's any safety in this tank, and it's it really mirrors the end scene mm. because they're yeah. in a, in a way there's all this carnage and destruction around them. And yet they're they're the only survivors like in the safety of this tank or the relative safety of the tank uh, they've got there's that quick shot of red who's been decapitated by a round that's punched through mm-hmm. but he's still in there. They haven't been able to even uh, you know get a breath of fresh air to to deal with either physically or emotionally like you know the fact that their friend and crew member has died and it's a really interesting intro to Collier because it's not there's no scene where he's like oh you know given instructions and and uh looking after the men you see him jump out of the the uh hatch onto this german officer and stab him right in the eye <laughs> so it's a hell of a way to meet a character and uh gets back in and finally uh, you really meet the crew in earnest as they roll back into to base and it's just the, the way that they capture just this dirty gritty feel i think is one of the the strongest points in the movie uh and and there's this they use it a couple times it's this pov shot from the view of the tracks on the sherman mm-hmm. and as they're rolling into the uh the ford operating base or, or whatever their camp is it's just mud caked and, and just spinning off of the tracks and it that scene stuck with me the first time I watched it, and I was looking forward to it this time again, and it had the same effect where it just, like, that encapsulates the whole movie. It's just, like, nothing's, cl- nothing's clean except for Private Ellison. When he shows yeah. up, he's uh, Spick and Span, and then their young lieutenant, lieutenant. Who doesn't last very long.
0: Their lieutenant, freaking hilarious. And I have to hilarious.
1: say,
0: <laughs> let me say something
1: myself. I've, th- I have an axe to grind because... As a former second lieutenant myself, how junior officers are portrayed in these movies like <laughs> irks me. Why can't they have like a reasonably competent officer? This guy is like bumbling, his hats on, crooked. He's like stuttering and stammering to, to talk to his troops. You get the classic moment where the he gives the order. You know, and this is after Allison joins the group. Yeah. But he gives the order to, to go out and execute this mission, and the... the uh, no one moves. Yeah, they, yeah, well, yeah, no one moves, and the NCOs <laughs> are just kind of, like, looking at him, and he's like, I gave an order, <laughs> damn it, or something to that
0: effect. War, and War Daddy's like, like Yeah, on. the enemy's not going anywhere.
1: <laughs> yeah. Like, does that happen absolutely every single day on every single post uh, or base in, in the military? Do I want to see it every single time I watch a war movie? No, I want to see one... Like, can we get one more person that's, that's sort of like major winners yeah. <laughs> when he was at <laughs> Like Reasonably competent and not a, like, just a incompetent asshole. But anyway, that's...
0: <laughs> no, you know, it, it's a good I, point. And it is a bit of comedy relief, but it, it also underscores the measure of respect that everyone else has for War Daddy. That... I mean, part of it is the lack of respect that they have for the lieutenant. And not simply because he's a lieutenant, but because he's clearly unseasoned. I mean, there's not even a speck yeah. of dirt on his uniform. I mean, that's, you know, and, and, and these guys are covered in dirt and grease and blood and everything else. And and he's out there in in kind of a sanitary mindset, giving orders and can't even like competently do that. But then they all look toward daddy and, you know, they they're going to smoke their last cigarette and you know once war daddy says all right let's mount up then they do it because they recognize i mean he he is even though it was announced that he was going to be the platoon leader he was the platoon leader anyway you know yeah
1: (laughs) when i i will say they they really accurately capture i mean that's That's the NCO Corps in in a nutshell Mm -hmm. right there, right? You've got a a very experienced, you know, he's not the highest ranking, right, as a staff sergeant, Mm -hmm. but he's incredibly experienced and gets leaned on uh, by a lot of folks. And that's that's it in a nutshell. And it's, the situation he finds himself in is a, a, a good introspective into his character because they've just come back from this battle the question gets asked, where's the rest of the platoon? Like we're it. Yeah. (laughs) Like as if they're just like out, like dicking around, like (laughs) doing donuts in their tanks. (laughs) Oh, they'll be here in a minute. They just decided to get some chocolate bars. Yeah. Uh, they're the last surviving tank. The dead body of red is still sitting in the tank. Mm -hmm. Um, and they, they get tasked to go right back out and you, you get, uh, the Collier, Sort of buys him a tiny bit of time, but effectively he has to go back, deal with this brand new private in Allison getting assigned to his tank. He's got to uh, somehow process the the death of Red mm-hmm. um, while also getting him like kind of cl- his remains cleaned out of the tank. Um, and there's no, and he's got to get the tank refitted and ready for battle again. Yeah. And so he comes back and divvy. I love the scene where he comes back and divvies out the tasks. Mm-hmm. To, to, to get the tank back moving again to all the soldiers, and they're, like, bitching. Like, that's the military right there. <laughs> <laughs> you want to know what the real military is like? It, like, it's that scene where Sergeant Collier comes back, he's like, you do this, you go get water, you go get this, and then they slap Ellison with a bucket to go scrub out the tank. Like, that's... yeah you know, That's it. Uh, and they're all bitching. And then he goes behind sort of some supplies, or whatever it is, and just squats down and almost has a breakdown. Yeah. And that's the first kind of peek behind the facade that you get of War Daddy.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you you see that it's it gets to him, it, and obviously it's the loss of Red. And there's also a stress there. I mean, you 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 kind of saw that. You know, gee, Ellison gets assigned to him, and he's like, "No, fuck no, nope." <laughs> And, and while it went unsaid, it was kind of, you know, reading between the lines was, I'm not going to take some green-eared kid who doesn't know shit about tanking, and which puts my crew at a risk, but also a, a, a high chance that here's one more person who's going to get killed on my crew. And, and it, he feels, you see through the movie, I mean, Collier is... He feels very responsible for his crew, to the point of, "Hey, I haven't seen you eat. Go eat." Uh, you know the, the 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 little things, and I mean he's he's got a big heart, but he covers it up.
1: Yeah. Well, there's a reason I think it. You 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 say the name War Daddy, and I think on one level it speaks to like his ruthlessness in combat, mm-hmm. but there's a literal meaning behind it, right? Like he's, parental. He's the father of this tank, yeah. right? And there's this... Pitt plays this character so damn well. Yeah. And it's... You know, I have my problems with the movie, but, like, his his casting was spot on with it. And there's this moment... Like, he just looks at Allison, and you can see all of your... The things you just said wrapped into, like, a look. Yeah. It doesn't have to be scripted out. There doesn't need to be this conversation between the two. But you can see that he's torn in those different directions where he's like, this is a baby that I'm bringing in mm-hmm. who's probably going to get killed because of his lack of training. And by extension, he could get the rest of us killed. Yeah. And I, I mean, it comes very, very close to be- being true in a couple instances as, as they first head out.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, totally. I mean, that, that basically that whole concept gets underscored um, in their their. First mission that they get assigned to uh, with with a tank column, uh, where Ellison sees a kid and chooses not to fire on him, and that ends up uh, being a kid or one of the kids who ends up destroying the lead tank in the column, and. You know, he Ellison sees the impact of this, you know, with with uh, one of the guys jumping out of the tank. He's on fire. I don't know if it was I don't think it was white phosphorus. I I think it was probably just a matter of, of, you know, diesel and oil blowing up inside the tank. The guy's on fire and it's like really, really like a gut wrenching split second moment where that guy jumps out and he's just completely engulfed in flame pulls his handgun out, puts it to his head and, and pops himself. Uh, and, and it's for as tough as that is for us as the audience, that happens right in front of Ellison. And that seems to be like his first lesson in war. Uh, and of course war daddy and, and the rest of the crew don't let him forget it either. I mean, they dress him down pretty well for it.
1: Yeah. I mean, he, for, for whatever parental instincts he, he has, I mean, he, immediately makes him face it and says that's you that's that's on you yeah what you're looking at and you know that may or may not be fully true uh you know who knows what would have happened if he had fired on that one german soldier whether the ambush would happen but it it certainly sends the message home to him yeah um it's because uh, you know it's I, the way i i like how the his character progresses because he doesn't it's not like he looks at that situation, Allison, and, and says like, "Oh, okay. Well, next time I'll fire." Right, right. Like I'm good now. I don't want that to ever happen again. And like the light switch flicks, and and all of a sudden he's like this ruthless, effective soldier. No, no, um, not at all. He, like he's clearly traumatized by it, and you know, I think it, he still has that moment of hesitation uh, the next time around. But also shows you we're talking about the, the vulnerability of these tanks, but that's. Granted, they're being hit with a Panzerfaust at close range, mm-hmm. but, you know, it's not like that rocket bounced right off the armor and, and went anywhere. That's one shot yeah. that, that went right in and uh, likely killed the entire crew mm-hmm. uh, in one shot there. Um, and for reference, though, to, to, to folks, I, I know we're not digging terribly deep into history, but at this point in the war... Uh, you know, Germany was sort of scraping the bottom of the barrel mm-hmm. when it came to the the men and, and folks who were making up its armed forces. Yeah. And so you, you had since the beginning of the war, this Hitler Youth Organization, this like fanatical uh, organization of where, where you know, children, young boys, and in some cases, girls were being brought up in the ways of, of the Nazi Party and, and uh, built to be, you know, among the most fanatical um toward the end of the war you had thousands of these kids uh the vast majority of whom were were way under the age of 18 being mobilized pulled out of school put into uniform mm-hmm. and made to go fight and in a lot of cases these were suicide missions i mean you yeah. know that that ambush was not one that was designed with military perfection yeah. that your 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 job is not to to survive and destroy that tank column your job is to go in there inflict what damage you can so i would say destroying a tank is a success mm-hmm. and you're probably not going to make it out of that no
0: no uh, cuz you know they're going to light up wherever they thought that shot came from and you're probably not going to survive it so oh totally yeah. it's it's a uh, it's <laughs> it it's, it's it's poorly orchestrated guerrilla warfare is is what it comes down to and yeah it, it was it was children and and old men uh, that were really the center of the fighting force for, for Nazi Germany at, at this point in the war.
1: Yeah. And so on the flip side is the the tank column makes its, its way to its destination, another um, small town village that's been taken over where the Americans are operating from. And you almost see the opposite problem. We're, we're moving so quickly into Germany that you don't have these, extensively planned, obsessively detailed offensive operations. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a certain amount of chaos as they're moving forward. And so War Daddy goes and meets uh, the captain, Jason Isaacs' character, and they've got a, a an American infantry platoon <clears throat> that's been cut off mm-hmm. and they're pinned down uh, by Germans. They don't have much recon. They know sort of where it is and, and the lay of the area, but even... Uh, certain Collier points out that tactically they're, they're kind of blind going into this thing. They don't have a real good feel of what anti-armor, what weaponry the Germans have. And based on, you know, the overall layout Collier points out once they pass a certain point, the tanks are going to be exposed and vulnerable. And so they're, they're almost dealing with the, the, the cart is getting a little before the horse. They've got to go out, On this mission and get these uh, these soldiers uh, who might be wiped out otherwise.
0: And something that they show really effectively a a couple of times in this movie is kind of that hedgerow fighting uh, that that was really encountered in France and Germany, where you've got open fields and they're all bordered by these hedgerows of thick brush and trees and that kind of stuff which just makes for a terrific camouflage for both infantry and armor. And once you break out of, of that hedgerow and you go out into the open field, you are completely exposed. And, uh, you know, we, we saw the impacts of that happening a few times in this, in this film. So yeah, they, they, they broke out into this, uh, into this field, to rescue the, the platoon that was pinned down. And they had a bunch of infantry that was, that they were supporting. And as, as they're working on eliminating uh, the German positions who, who were dug in, there were, you know, dead bodies, dead German bodies uh, outside of these trenches. And what's his name there? Uh, Norman, you know, gets the order, Hey, you know, shoot, shoot the bodies. And he's like, well, why would I shoot them? They're already dead. And something we saw demonstrated again, a few times in this movie is just cause someone's laying down on the ground and it looks like they're dead. Doesn't mean they're dead. And that could be, you know, someone who's basically playing possum. Um, they probably don't want to die. They realize they're being overwhelmed by a, uh, by a larger force and a bunch of their buddies around them are dead so shit i'm going to lay down in the mud too and hopefully they'll pass by me and not kill me um, but you know what if they
1: or you're waiting till the or you're waiting till those tanks are right up on you where you can get an effective shot exactly cuz they you know you know that we were talking about tactics and, and and you made some really good points about you know how these tanks are configured in their armor i mean those soldiers know full well the germans that they're not going to have a chance of punching through the armor from the front. Right. So why not wait until they, they either make it right beside your trench or past your trench. And you've got an open shot mm-hmm. at the rear of the, the tank or even the side, the tracks knock out one of these things.
0: Yep. Yeah. So yeah, this is kind of that second opportunity where Ellison is, is still having to learn and, uh, obviously the 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 crew doesn't respond real well to it and then we get into this one scene in the movie um immediately following this rescue which is which is tough it's it's real challenging i even as a viewer to, to deal with because you understand the point that sergeant collier is trying to make but also ellison ellison is not wrong in the stand that he's making because it it, it is not only wrong, it is illegal to be shooting an an unarmed prisoner. Uh, And Collier basically forces him to kill, uh, to kill a German SS officer. And, uh, you know, it's a heck of a struggle and and you see kind of the emotional toll it takes on Collier. And for as much of, of a struggle it was and the point that Collier was trying to make, I don't think that that itself changed Ellison's behavior. Ellison's behavior really didn't change until later on when, when he lost someone who was at least momentarily important to him. So what what do you think, Tom? I think it's,
1: we talked about Pitt's moment where you see a little bit underneath his, this uh, tough exterior this is one of those scenes that makes—he's not the the kind of character that you can easily root for. Right. Oh yeah. Um, he's completely—he's very morally ambiguous. Uh, this this scene sets up as one where you would imagine like the adult in the room comes up uh, and and tamps down on you know, this fervor of the crowd to to kill this guy because mm-hmm. they're all upset and you know where'd you get this American coat from? Why are you wearing it? and the German, meanwhile, is making this emotional plea, like, I have a family and whatnot. Pitt comes right up, or Collier comes right up and smacks the pictures out of his hand. Yeah, I don't give a fuck about that. And, mm-hmm. like, kicks him away. Yeah. Uh, So it's it it's almost the opposite of what you would expect from a character. Like, you, you would expect him to say, oh, you know, okay, well, you make a good point. Like, well, <laughs> why don't we take this guy prisoner and, and follow the rules? And instead it's not, I, I think it would have even been different if he had just shot him himself, but you get this like really visceral moment where he sits down on the ground with him and straddles Allison from behind and like holds his hand and fires the pistol. Yeah. Uh, and then gets up and, uh, you know, really regards him still with disgust. Uh, and that's sort of like it, very close to the breaking point in their relationship where he's like, y- you, you're becoming a liability mm-hmm. to my crew. I got it, you're young, and I have some obligation to to uh, protect you, but at the same time, if you're endangering the, the lives of me and the rest of the crew here, that's, that's a serious problem. Yeah. Especially when it comes to, and the prisoner is a different story, but it especially when it comes to your basic ability to engage and destroy the enemy.
0: Yeah. And then it's interesting that, you know, Collier then turns around uh they they get back over to fury and he's like all right you know I, I need you guys to do A B C X Y Z and turns back to ellison and says and hey you need to eat something i haven't seen you eat for the last few days
1: yeah
0: and and uh,
1: i know you're emotionally traumatized now but have a
0: snack. yeah yeah and, 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 and Kunas, like, you know, Kunas is interesting in this because he obviously, you know, he's, he's been with Collier for, for a long time. He, he understands the intent of all this. And he says, yeah, you go eat something and you make sure he sees you eat it. Uh, it, it <laughs> it's, it's just like this little meaningful yet awkward exchange at the end of this whole scene, which was just really, really disruptive. And again, I mean, as, as a viewer, you totally get the point of it, but you, basically you see both sides of the coin and you understand the reasons for for it all. And, um, it's, it's not as pivotal of a moment as Collier wants it to be because Ellison really doesn't completely learn from it. So yeah, you, you, you see some interesting stuff. So their, their next mission is, uh going in and, and taking this this german town and you see you know interestingly enough when they first get in there there's they encounter a little bit of resistance which is mostly dug in and like the the basement of one of the buildings and they fire off uh it wasn't uh it wasn't fury it was the the tank that was right behind them yeah fires off uh some white phosphorus in into uh into that building and you see the effect of it, the, the, you know, surviving German soldiers vomiting out of this building. Um, and, and I think cinematically they showed it pretty well with just these, you know, burning white spots on their, on their bodies, which mm-hmm. is the phosphorus. And that will burn through their whole freaking body. That stuff is just insane. And um, you, you see a, another, Interesting and and kind of awkward exchange here, where the attitude of of some of the American soldiers is, "Now don't kill them, let them burn, let them suffer," and then you have others who are, uh, you know, uh, there's just there's no sense in that; just fucking kill them.
1: It evoked for me the scene in Saving Private Ryan where the the one pillbox gets hit with a flamethrower, and the guys down below are like, "Don't shoot, let them burn," yeah, yeah, they're flailing out and screaming. Um, I tell you, my, my favorite part of this first part of the scene, and one of my favorite things in the entire movie, uh, is the intercom use between tanks. Mm-hmm. The, there's this moment in the scene where, I forget, Ellison is bitching and like c- crying or something, and... <laughs> uh war daddy gets pissed and tells him that if he's gonna bitch and moan not to do it over the yeah the <laughs> damn intercom <laughs> yeah yeah but i just love his you know just call like brad pitt on the intercom between the tanks mm-hmm. uh you know they take machine gun fire from one of the upper levels of one of these buildings and he tells them to put an he round a high explosive round uh into the building mm-hmm. and you know war daddy i don't even think is the one that fires it but um you know, even in scenes where he's talking down and relaying orders down to Bible or the rest of the crew, just you know, watching that interact yeah. is just really, really cool. Um, but they finally do take the town, you know, reasonably quickly. And there's this moment that's very different than we just see a scene where they they take an executed prisoner, but. As one of these buildings is dumping out with with folks who are surrendering and whatnot, you get this moment where an SS officer is coming out. And we didn't mention it at the start, but as they're rolling into this town, there are Germans who have been hung with these signs Mm -hmm. that effectively say, you know, I wouldn't fight for the fatherland. Uh, You know, civilians who, who have been executed and collier asks whether he he asks the german uh, you know one of the german civilians whether this is the guy who's been executing civilians and you know the the ss officer kind of has his head down and they just open up on yep. him and there's no there's no moral ambiguity no ambiguity here no, not at all uh, you know, it's it's a completely different feel with almost an identical <clears throat> situation but for it's not like the saucer's is pulling out pictures of his family or anything like yeah. that but as a viewer like i felt two completely different emotions between those scenes the first scene you almost feel like a little bit of sorrow for this the the guy getting killed yeah. this scene you're like ha,
0: yeah yeah you you you're bastard. like no fuck that guy <laughs> there was also a, a real interesting yeah Thing that you see here that if you, I, I think if you're not paying attention to who the people are, you you kind of miss it. The person who actually surrendered the town was uh, the Burgermeister, the mayor. Mm-hmm. And he said, these soldiers don't want to fight. And of course he says soldiers and then we see what we talked about before that it was kids. I mean, you know, you saw girls yeah. wearing braids and pigtails and, you know, and and boys and that kind of stuff in these uniforms. And then of course you have as you mentioned, this officer, which, which ends up coming out. And so it's interesting that there was a civilian surrender, not a military surrender, but the, the, the kids, these quote soldiers, they were like, yeah, no, we, we, we don't want to do this either. So kind of at that in the point movie. in the face of the enemy, the officer, the German officer basically had no authority. It's, I, I mean, he, probably could have shot the Burgermeister and the kids and maybe convinced some of the kids to keep fighting, but he, he realized it was a losing battle. So the, that whole setup in there had some really interesting dynamic that was over very, very quickly, and if you miss it, you miss it. And, it, and it's fine, but it just it's one of those things that I caught that's like, wow, that that's a very cool dynamic.
1: Yeah, and the, the, the movie does a good job where it almost sets the SS up as the, the true bad guy in all of this. At the beginning, Holy. when they're at the, the forward operating base, there's that prisoner being marched through and Pitt lunges at him mm-hmm. and is like, you kill every SS officer you see. Like, these guys are the baddest of the bad. Yep. Certainly here you see it. Uh, and then ultimately, at, at the final stand, it's not just some German battalion, it's it's a German SS battalion. And it, it creates a this big dichotomy between what's left of the normal German forces, kids and stuff. Uh, And uh, the real bad guys, so to speak. So it's uh, very interesting juxtaposition there. Yeah. Um, But I think my favorite scene in the entire movie comes right after this.
0: Yeah, take us through this get because to... this is like this is also another really big pivotal moment in the movie and it's it's a little complex. There's a lot that's going on for as it's not battle. <laughs> it's one of the no, it's one of the non-battle scenes we have in the movie, but it is incredibly grounded and meaningful.
1: It's one of my f- I, I'll say it this way, I and I don't have this opinion about the movie overall, but it's one of my favorite scenes, I think, in any war movie because it's so different and the performances across the board in it are so good yeah. that it's just, uh, you know, I, I think without it, this movie would have been as forgettable as forgettable can be. Just a, just but, another uh, war movie. Right. So they end up uh, getting a little reprieve. They don't have to, the Fury crew doesn't have to go back out immediately and they've got basically the night or a few hours to to bed down. You see this funny scene where Gordo and Kunass find a German woman who's willing to fuck them for a chocolate bar, I guess. Uh, You know, a prostitute probably. They bring her into the tank. Yeah, it's going to be both of us, okay? (laughs) (laughs) And so you know what's happening there. But then uh, Brad Collier catches some movement from up uh, it basically sees a woman that, that's looking down on, on them, a civilian woman from one of the upper floors. So he brings Collier and initially they go in just in case it's, uh, you know, some kind of resistance. So they're armed and they go into this small apartment and it turns out to be uh, a mother and her, her, I don't know, t- teenage daughter. She looked, you know, 18 to 20, 21, somewhere in there, but basically the same age as, as private Ellison. And there's this tense moment, you know. Initially, before that, I should say that the uh, Collier takes Ellison into a room and shows them. It's like this very opulent, you know, apartment, like very ornate. And there's a bunch of very well dressed but dead Germans who killed themselves as the Americans approach. And Collier uses it as this kind of quiet lesson. Like these are the kind of folks we're dealing mm-hmm. with. This this level of uh, intensity. But then you get this this odd juxtaposition where they go into this apartment and the mother initially is like, oh this is you know, these guys are here to, to do some damage. But then Collier like hands him a basket of eggs, I think. And, yep. and it kind of diffuses the situation. Mm-hmm. And from there it's like this <clears throat> one of the most bizarre but engaging scenes I, I think in, in most any movie that I've watched. Very, very little dialogue because neither of the Germans speak a lick of English. Uh, <laughs> Collier can speak some German, mm-hmm. but it's not like he has this long conversation. No. But he hands the mother these eggs, and she starts to cook breakfast, <laughs> effectively, or some kind of meal. Mm-hmm. And and Collier just starts to strip down and like shave himself, and uh, like right in the middle of the damn living room. And he he looks over at Allison, and he's like. You know, that That's a fine girl right there, referencing the daughter. Mm-hmm. like y- You take her into the bedroom or I will.
0: <laughs> she, she, she's and, clean. <laughs> yeah.
1: When you see this moment from Allison where he's he plays on the piano right before that interaction happens. And, and so you see a little bit of who he is beneath the veil. And this girl sits down beside him and sings uh, very nicely. And, and that's when Collier makes his comment. Uh, and so they go off in the bedroom and and you know obviously uh, you know make, make make a special connection there right we, although you don't see it but then the crew comes in and uh you know a little bit later and stumbles upon Collier and Allison here and Gordo is they're drunk Gordo's wearing this fucking top hat and he's got a cane he got from somebody and it's like this really tense interaction because the, you you've you see this side of Sergeant Collier where you want to know more. Because he's all of a sudden a little refined. Mm-hmm. He's got some manners. Maybe not refined because he's there with his shirt off shaving in the middle. But he cleans himself <laughs> up. He's about to enjoy this nice breakfast. And then the rabble rousers come in. You know, these other animals. And yeah he's like you know i'm not gonna let you disturb my breakfast yeah yeah (laughs) this nice meal that he's built to
0: enjoy and but and these guys come in and they're just total assholes Uh, and i mean even bible is like very like passively aggressively being an (laughs) asshole and it's one of those things that like okay so this guy's supposed to you know he's he's this this you know a saved bible thumper he's you know supposedly the the moral compass of the group and he's being an asshole. And it's like, what the fuck is going on that? Like, and you see, like, this is where Collier now has this, you see, he has a great military relationship with these guys, but in terms of a, of a personal civil relationship, you now kind of see some of this fracturing in, in the personalities and like Collier's just pissed. I mean, he's just sitting there seething and he could order them out of the room. He could like just fucking explode on them. And he doesn't, he's also very passive aggressive about it too. It, it, it makes the scene even more awkward, but still in a good way from a, for, from a viewer's perspective.
1: Yeah. When he lays down a line that, is unlike anything he's done before. I mean, he, they're tacitly talking about raping this girl Mm -hmm. and he makes the comment outright. He doesn't beat around the bush. He's like, anybody that touches her is going to deal with me effectively. Um, And there's no other moment really in the movie where he, he talks to the crew like that. And I think it, that's why it's effective. If he was just being a dick to his crew all the time and, and throwing comments out like that all the time, it would just be another, uh, just another line. Yeah. But suddenly here, he, like you believe he's going to fuck them up. If they, they step out of line, they certainly believe that. Yeah. Um, doesn't stop for from being a dickhead and like licking her food. Oh. Uh, <laughs> and then he's like, I didn't touch it. I didn't yeah. touch it. Yeah. Uh, and then they tell, Bible tells this bizarre-ass story from the D-Day landing where they're behind the main invasion force. They have this big battle, and in the aftermath are all these injured horses, and they just spend an entire day, talks about, killing horses. And you've seen... This is another, I think, effective piece of the movie. In the opening scene, you see that Collier has some level of affection toward animals like this. Cause after he stabs that German, he takes the, uh, the bridle off of this horse that he was riding kind of pets nicely and then sends him on his way. And Bible intros, this story, I think it's Bible that intros, this story He's like, you like horses and Collier's face is just like, fuck no, like do not tell this, do not bring this back up. And so they get done telling this and he's like, thank you for that great, Breakfast conversation, yep. like I, I, I really appreciate it.
0: <laughs> well, and, and what's also interesting in this is that while the story is being told, Bible also starts crying. So, yeah. man, I I cannot peg. I mean, like you said right up front, like his this character and the personality of this character is so weird. Like you can't peg it. It's like. And, and to an extent, I mean, I get that they're trying to relay how fucking terrible war is to Norman, who, who they think still doesn't get it. And, and, and he really doesn't at, at this point. But to be doing this in front of War Daddy, who they all clearly respect, and they know that he's pissed off by this entire intrusion, it was it's just such an awkward scene. Well I think at
1: the core of it, they they come into this like nice little happy moment, this nice clean apartment. Mm-hmm. Uh clearly Ellison has has had a good time and I don't think they're trying to piss off Collier, but I think they want to disrupt this little moment for Ellison. Like, oh, you've got a little girlfriend here mm-hmm. and like this is this is war to you, right? Like you you've you've got this uh lovely existence where Uh, you know, you don't have to see the, the sausage getting made, but let me tell you what it's really like. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why that story gets selected in spite of how much Collier doesn't want to want it to be told. Mm -hmm. And there's such a great moment. Like one of my favorite lines from Gordo, Michael Pena's character is like right at the end where he's like, I'm sorry, I'm drunk. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And then they decide to, you know, they, they have to, fun's over they've got to roll out and uh yeah allison's saying his goodbyes and they've had this like connection moment where he fucking reads her palm and he's like oh you'll have one great love in your life and you know part of you is like oh maybe maybe one day they'll reunite and then that all gets shattered pretty much immediately as an artillery strike happens as they get back out to the tank and to your point earlier, I mean, this is sort of a turning point for Ellison.
0: And it was even interesting how, how Kunas handled it. So, you know, Ellison runs up to the building and, and sees her dead and war dead. He's like, someone go get him. Kunas says, I'm on it. I got him. And he goes and gets him. And it's interesting because Kunas, like this whole exchange, while at the same time he's berating him, he's like, who the fuck do you think you are? Jesus? You can't raise her back. Yeah. She's dead. This is fucking war, man. This is everything that we see. This is what we're dealing with. But then on the other hand, he's like, he lets Ellis lash out at him. You know, he, he he's like punching him and stuff and he just lets him do it. And then, you know, he also at one point, like, he basically embraces him. I mean, he he puts his arm around him to kind of stop him from lashing out like that. But he, he's also not... He's not hitting him back. He's not doing anything. He's just kind of holding on to him for a moment. In this moment of understanding, like, hey, I fucking get it. This is horrible. And then at that point, you know, Ellison mounts back up. And and you now see him kind of trying to process this stuff. And, and you know, they're, they're on their way to their next destination. And he's kind of camping out on top of the tank and War Daddy looks at him and he's just kind of pondering the whole thing and, you know, points off in the distance and says, hey, you see that? That's a whole fucking city burning. That's a lot of people dying. You know, he tries to put this in perspective for Ellison that it's not just, you know, yeah, you suffered your loss. You saw a person die basically in front of you. There's a lot of fucking people who are dying, and while this war is almost over, there's still a lot more people that are gonna die.
1: And And my favorite line from his character the entire movie is that, that one where he's like, I started this war killing Germans in Africa. Now I'm killing Germans in Germany And yeah. he makes that exact point of yours, like, you know, there's there's a lot more killing that's gotta be done before this is all said and done.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So they, they end up, you know, they're, they're told now, okay, you need to go secure this, this crossroads. And of course they, (laughs) they, 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 start off there, um, with several tanks and it ends up being just them and, you know, they lose their track and, and, uh, Ellison was sent to, to, to go be a spotter and seize this column of, of Germans coming in and everyone's ready to, to just bug out they're like hey that's you know this is it we can't fucking hold this we're we're out of here
1: well you got the tiger battle before that that that's oh yeah yeah, the, yeah the... yes
0: that's how the yeah that's how the other thing start are taking out with
1: yep what do they have like four shermans is all they've got yep. left at this yeah point. four
0: shermans v one tiger
1: and the the idea is is you've got this vulnerable point in the supply chain um that that is exposed and there's German forces that are moving—if mm-hmm. they are left unopposed—they're going to hit the Allied supply chain right. and, and really fuck, you know, fuck a lot of stuff up for the the Americans there. Yep. Uh, you know, doctors, medics, cooks—you uh, know, all probably some Jags, there, <laughs> <I
0: don't
1: know. laughs> some clerk typists. Hashtag save and, the Jags. Uh, yeah, you better send more than four times. Anyhow, either there or e- the jags are going to
0: write up a legal citation. That's right. <laughs> You're not clear to engage us. <laughs>
1: so, so that they're they're rolling toward this objective, and it it's there's like no better moment to 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 uh, like visually put into perspective how powerful that that tank that cannon on the tiger tank is but you see this uh sherman behind them get hit broadsided effectively and its turret just fucking flips up in the air i mean it's oh, like yeah uh, incredible the whole thing's a whole there's no chance it, it you know it's, it's not moving another inch mm-hmm. and immediately they realize that shit has hit the fan that this is not some uh normal german tank that they're up against
0: yeah yeah so I mean you 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 see the 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 power of of the tiger in this and an explosive power and you you have this thing which is almost kind of evokes like a a a, a medieval scene of jousting you know where yeah. you've 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 got tanks on on opposite sides of the field headed toward each other, and really kind of the desperation of of the Shermans I mean they know they are outgunned. And they figure, okay, our our only means of taking out this tiger is to surround him and hopefully get a penetration and knock him out. And you know, in the process, process of course, everyone gets knocked out except for uh, except for Fury, who happens to uh, knock a couple rounds into the tail of the tiger. And 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 you really see it like I this whole particular scene really underscores to me a lot of the you know, what armor combat was, was about, uh, like you said earlier, it's not like you can, you know, if there's a round coming at you, it's not like you can just kind of everyone jump out of the tank. Uh, I mean, you, 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 you can't get out of a tank fast enough for that to happen. So it's, you, you got to take your licks and hope that your armor is going to hold up, uh, or hope that they're going to miss their shot or or something like that. And you just feel this, anxiety when you're watching this scene of you know who can load faster who can aim faster you know who's going to get that shot and and it's just it's cra- i mean you you see a freaking anti-tank round decapitate one of the tank commanders which was just mm-hmm. fucking nuts like that you know you, you see this armor on armor thing and you just don't expect to see flesh rendered like that you know it, and and it even to the point that like it it surprised war daddy you know he sees it happen it's this was the tank right next to him he's like oh shit that's
1: his buddy yeah Yeah, one of the other ncos he was close with
0: yeah so you know that's just nuts and and so they got beat up pretty bad from that they had a lot of mechanical issues they had a, a couple of they had some scars they had a couple of holes punched in there um so you know they're they end up limping uh to this crossroads on their own and 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 they're it and um Yeah. So you, you have the setup to this final conflict. And and of course the, the crew is like, Hey, you know, we're, we're, we're one tank. We have a a, a bad track. They, they ran over a mine. They didn't get to repair it. So they can't even, they can't even maneuver. They're just, they're stuck. They're a stationary target for the enemy. Uh, And they were about to, to, to ditch and get out of there. Um, And war daddy you know he he understands first of all the consequences of of what happens if they don't hold that crossroads and his also he also has that comment once again of Fury is home I'm not leaving my home he's like you you guys can go it's cool he's like it's totally fine uh, and then you know interestingly enough you you see first off Norman who who now he gets it and he's like no I'm I'm staying I'm gonna fight. And then, you know, of course everybody signs on, you kind of have the, the hero moment of, of, of the film here where everyone says, yes, we're going to stand against evil and tyranny and everything that this is all about. Mm And, you know, our own family that we have here and, 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 uh, and they make their stand and you see, again, a really great, uh, uh, kind of combat montage that comes out of this with things happening back and forth. And, um, I don't. I mean, it's there. There's so much that to really, we really can't go into detail on it. Tom, is there anything from that though that you want to bring out as something that like really stands out to you or a particular highlight?
1: It really evoked to me the same feeling as in a different way, but as the final stand in Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, yeah. Where you've got this, uh, except very different. It's the same part Ryan, they sort of had this like tiered plan where they had fallback points mm-hmm. and Hey, you know, the Alamo is this, this hm. spot on the other side of the bridge and we'll blow it. There was nowhere for them to right. go. They're not going to hole up in that little makeshift field hospital. And that, no. that tiny little no. house, um, they're similar. They're even more <laughs> in fact, when the
0: Germans uh, went in uh, there. Fury blew it up.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. The
0: Word daddy's like, burn that fucking thing. And they just, yeah, torch uh,
1: and they're even more man, but they, you know the other the other piece of it is they're they're really limited on ammo and whatnot. And the only thing that I, I took issue with, like, why you wouldn't, you know, your ammo is strapped to the outside. Yeah, why would
0: you bring it in? Tank.
1: Yeah, bring <laughs> it in. It it's set up for a great scene where they have to pop out and go get it. But I'm like, come on, Collier, like, yeah, yeah bring your ammo uh, you know into it but they uh, i i really enjoyed this and i thought it was it was well shot mm-hmm. um it would have been easy it, like at times it was a little tough to tell what was going on but i think that was sort of the the whole point of it was that this was just a chaotic uh it was almost like a video game like one of those video game modes where you just fa- face wave yeah. of, after wave of yeah. attackers yeah uh except here it's you know, bastard SS soldiers or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, they're slowly running out of resources or whatever. But I think one of the things that really stood out to me was the, uh, emotional hit that came with each of the soldiers dying oh, yeah. in succession. Yeah. Uh, these are not particularly guys that you're, you're rooting for over the course of the movie. Um, you know, Gordo and, and Kunat, like they're not real sympathetic characters. Mm-hmm. But still somehow, uh, particularly, I think, Bible, when he gets killed and there's this emotional moment w- w- when Collier realizes he's dead from the sniper's round. It yeah. um, really hits home and I think it really ramped up the effectiveness of the scene for me. Yeah.
0: Well, and, and you know, Gordo basically saved the crew. Um, I mean, he he, he yeah. dropped his own grenade back into the tank and you know, when when he got shot and and Norman saw it and Yell's grenade and and Gordo and I mean basically Gordo knew he was dying anyway. Uh he grabbed that grenade and hugged it and and you know he took the blast himself and, and that uh yeah. you know saved most if not all of of the crew in that moment. So yeah, you, you had these these moments, like you said, with each individual crew member as as they got killed. So, you know, basically up until the end where, you know, now the sergeant has been shot, what, three times, I think, uh, by the sniper. And, you know, Norman's in the tank. He's out of ammo. And they're basically saying, okay, you know, w- w- what are we going to do? And and Norman's like, I, I really want to surrender. You know, I, he, he didn't say, I don't want to die. Yeah. But that was really what he was effectively saying. And, and War Daddy is like, no, d- dude, you, you you don't get it. If <laughs> if you surrender, they're gonna hurt you bad. You you yeah. will die, and it's not gonna be you know just a a bullet to the head like you might get here in combat. It's it's you know you could be tortured and starved and all that kind of shit. And, uh,
1: and I love that line because it's it's that last act of like this last sequence of of him being the father figure yeah. where he's trying to impart the last bit of advice. He goes like please don't, like please don't surrender and then he you know they'll they'll hurt you real bad and then they're going to kill you real bad and I can't protect you anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's uh it it it's a tough scene and and that one kind of tugs at the heartstrings. I mean, we we know that uh we know that War Daddy's not going to survive it. And so he then ends up uh, sending Ellison down through the bottom hatch uh, pretty much right at the time where uh, the Nazi soldiers climb up on the tank, open up the top hatch, throw some grenades in and, you know, you hear the grenades kind of uh, tick, tick, tick on the, the, uh, you know, as, as, as they hit inside and then you hear the blast go off. And uh, so then Ellison kind of, you know lays low under the tank covers himself in some mud hoping he's not going to get spotted and he does get spotted by a real young SS trooper who has this moment and you can tell he's kind of processing the thought here and then realizes you know what we're about the same age and this kid's no threat and we're just going to move on I'm not going to tell anybody uh, and that's kind of, well, one of the last moments, uh, cause there's still one more moment where your heart kind of skips a beat in this, but like, that's a real tense moment there because you don't know mm-hmm. what decision this SS trooper is going to make.
1: Yeah. That one was a little, I, that, that was probably my least favorite moment, maybe of the entire movie. Cause it's like, you've built the SS up as these bastards. Like I get the, the youth portion that they've, they've taken, but like, in that moment after what just occurred between the two, like I can totally see it from the other side where you're saying this, like all this carnage and this young soldier sees, probably sees himself in Ellison and like, what's, what's one more death going to do for this whole war. But it just, I don't know. It was a little odd to me because I'm like the way the SS are portrayed, you would fully expect him to be like, Hey, I got one. Let's pull him out and stab him real good. Like, let's hurt him real good, then kill him real yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. But it, it, it does. It, but know. then,
0: I mean, you also have what we mentioned before is like this this backfill that the German military as a whole, including the SS, has is kids and old men, and sure, who who may not be fully bought into the the doctrine. I mean, they're doing it because they're basically being forced to do it, and it's. Hey, yeah, you, yeah. you know what? If I don't do it, they're going to kill me anyway, and probably kill my family. And so they're just fighting because they have to fight. And so I, I see, I see this as also being kind of a time where you have a cultural shift or a philosophical shift in this because the the Nazi mentality has now is now being infused with people who don't necessarily buy into it. Um, so, I mean, that was something that kind of further eroded their momentum and their ability to hold out. Yeah. Yeah. No, I see that. I see that. But yeah, I mean, there is also part of it where I'm like, I don't know. I mean, why, why wouldn't he say, Hey, I found one stab, stab, stab. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's, yeah, it, it, you kind of see that going a couple ways. So anyhow, after this column finally passes, um, Norman climbs his way back up into the tank, kind of says his, his final goodbye to War Daddy, puts his jacket over him, and then all of a sudden he, he hears people back around the tank again. And he hears people climbing up on the tank. He grabs War Daddy's uh, revolver and he's ready to make his final stand and and of course this was uh, an allied column and they find him and they stick him into an ambulance and and one guy says, "Hey kid, you're a hero." <laughs> which, which is such a strange co- I mean is he a hero simply because he survived? Is he a hero right. because he was you know, the guy looked around and saw all these dead bodies in this carnage and he's like, "Well, hey, this is the last survivor of clearly a holdout that we had here that like made a big difference and killed a bunch of Nazis. Um, it, but it's just such a weird statement at the end of this movie to say, Hey, you're a hero.
1: Yeah. Yeah. When I you think what's going on in his mind, like he, you know, he's listening to that comment and probably reflecting on his entire arc and, uh, you know, balancing that against some of the other stuff that he's, he's done and, and also seeing the other guys die because it's not like he he didn't pull a gordo and, mm. and necessarily save anybody if anything he's got sort of the weight of their deaths on his shoulders yeah you know why, why was I the one that they've got to live and they had to die yep you know yep I'd trade my place for any of them so it's it's a tough one but I will say the scene uh, the payoff scene is that last oh the, uh, the wide like shot camera move as it just pulls out from the tank. And you just keep seeing that the scale of the carnage, yeah. like what they were able to do uh, before it fades out to black. I just thought that was a like a perfect way to end. it. Yeah. Especially considering this whole battle, you don't really get a sense of how effective they are, um, you know, like totally. I mean, right. you see them killing a lot of Germans, but uh, it, that really puts a fine point on it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it really does. Yeah. It's, it's a heck of a closing shot with this. So uh, as usual, we we cover some military lingo that gets thrown at us uh, in the film. Tom, you want to cover what was? Uh, yeah, what we got here.
1: We actually did. We touched on some. We touched on. They, they call it Willie Pete. We've talked about white phosphorus, definitely in the We Were Soldiers yes, yeah. uh, podcast. But we talked about it here. Uh, Willie Pete's just the the slang term for it. Mm-hmm. Um, Buttoned up is a term you hear quite a bit in this movie, and and uh, or button up, but it gets used in a number of different ways. But basically, they're talking about sealing up the tank, closing up the hatches, and uh, getting the protection of that uh, of the tank. Decreases visibility. Obviously, you don't have the tank commander up mm-hmm. and able to spot stuff. You're really limited to that periscope and what the the folks can see out the front of the tank. Uh, but it, it's the most protection that you have, mm-hmm. uh, and that term is still used today. HE, we talked about, it's referred to in its shorthand like that. It, that's a high explosive round, uh, sort of the main round of the tank. Um, tracers is another term that you hear. Uh, they, I think Gordo talks about the, the tracer rounds helping them. Uh, these are rounds that have a small pyrotechnic charge that's built into the base mm-hmm. and so when the the round gets fired that pyrotechnic charge goes off and it burns really really brightly so that you can see the path of the round as it goes and usually it's not like your entire drum of ammo are tracer rounds uh but usually every few rounds is a tracer round so that you can help guide in where your fire is is uh, heading um it could be a liability because hmm. you know you're firing those tracer rounds. People can see where they're coming from yeah. a little more easily, but it does make it easier to dial in. Squirt is is one that actually I, I was familiar with in a different context. In the movie, it gets used. Gordo says that a lot. Squirt that guy, mm-hmm. uh, you know. So he's it's just slang for for kill that guy or fire on that guy. You hear it in a different context. Uh, these days, not I've never heard squirt used like that, and maybe that's just me. But you hear squirter, like, hey, we've got a squirter, which typically means an enemy or, or somebody running away from combat that's presumed to be an enemy. Mm. So, hey, you have a you know an airstrike happen, and you've got somebody that's running out of the kill zone. That's a squirter. And you got to deal with uh, that person. Mm. So that was that was one that I actually. Myself wasn't familiar... I was familiar with Squirter, but not Squirt as he was using Mm -hmm. it. And the last one, they use this in reference to uh, Collier sometimes, but it's called uh, Top. And if you guys listen to this podcast, you've heard me talk a lot about my daughter, and now you've heard her probably. (laughs) (laughs) We we didn't tell you we were going to have a guest star. Um, No, so they call collier i think at least once they call him top usually uh, when they the term refers to like the, the like you spelled out top the top soldier usually it's a a nickname given to like the first sergeant so first sergeant at least in the army is an actual rank uh an e8 uh would be the pay grade but uh It's just a shorthand. Hey, top, I've I've got to go to this appointment, or Hey, top, what are we doing tomorrow? Mm -hmm. Um, It's a term of 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 affection, but it literally means like the the top enlisted soldier in that unit. Uh, So that that's a slang term that you
0: gets used.
1: But that's your military lingo for fury.
0: Great, there you go. Uh, You also put together uh, some. Tidbits here on uh, kind of on the film itself, some behind the scenes stuff, and uh, oh, we can probably just alternate back and forth between these. Uh, the first one you have here is that uh, in the film, it was actually the last surviving and operational uh, Tiger 1 was used in this film, and it was the first time since 1950 that a real Tiger had been used rather than a prop. And uh, yeah, this is interesting because it's something. I've I've seen in kind of the the behind the scenes stuff for a lot of different movies that use tigers is that they are they'll they'll use another tank and they'll just put sheet metal around it to make it look like uh, like a tiger.
1: I am pretty sure that's what they did in Saving Private yes. Ryan that yep. and certainly in in Band of Brothers like the Yep. Uh, those are not actual tigers. Correct. They're either digital or it's like you said, some other tank. Yep. An imposter. Yeah. That's my favorite fact about this movie. I find it fascinating. The movie was shot in uh, the UK mostly because purely that's that's where the la- you know most of the last surviving and operational tanks are. Y- you can go around mo- a lot of places in the U.S. and find a lot of non-operational. oh yeah
0: yeah in front of a vfw or something like that in front of a military base yeah Yeah. yep
1: finding them operational to actually (laughs) drive around or even fire even a you know a simulated (laughs) is is really rare and they had 10 real shermans that were used in the movie uh to include i I believe they had a a sherman that was used for some shots of fury Mm -hmm. um I don't think they allowed the real tiger to get fired on.
0: <laughs> <the drill laughs> Probably rounds. not.
1: Something something tells me that a little bit of that was digital. But it it's huge, right? We talk all the time I the Star Wars comes to mind where we talk about the difference of a either a physical prop or a real thing. Mm-hmm. Uh that's there, a real vehicle or or whatever. And I think it's when you when you could blend the two together like they did in this movie, it really pays off. And I go back to that scene, really that, not even a scene, that POV shot from the tracks. That's a real tank. That's not like digital tank tracks that are done in a computer somewhere. You can't recreate that shot without having something physical on set there. So I think it makes a huge difference. Uh, And unfortunately, you know, I talked about at the beginning, like I would love to see more movies like this. It's going to get harder and harder to do it in any way other than digital, because these, t- True. it, it costs a tremendous, like it's just a fortune to keep these tanks up and running and in proper repair, uh, you know, 10 years from now, those 10 tanks that are, that are in here may be down to, to four or three, something like that. So it's a real shame. Yeah.
0: Yeah, really. And a lot of them are, are held there. There a lot of them are privately owned uh, or owned by organizations and such. So, you know they they are basically self-funded to maintain they don't have a lot yeah. of resources of course spare parts uh at this point you know they might look out and find some kind of surplus somewhere but it's probably mm-hmm. uh you know custom built parts uh that they have to you know go to a machine shop or something to to get done and uh to you know to affect any repairs and such and you know these these things are these things are beasts they are not uh not easy to to repair so
1: Schwarzenegger's got his own little army of tank he's got a tank collection does he really which is like that's so completely on character <laughs> for him like if you told me arnold Schwarzenegger had like you know a, a collection of like you know biplanes i'd be like oh you know yeah that's yeah. cool i guess but like no, Arnold has tanks, and that's the way the universe should be. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I don't know if he has a working Sherman, but he should. Somebody should give him one. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> he so he just rides around. There was a there was a charity uh, like one of the what's that company? Omaze or whatever oh, yeah, that yeah. does yep. like charity things where you can get celebrity experiences or whatever. Mm-hmm. But the whole pro some of these will be like, hey, you could come to the, you could be a, like an extra in this yeah. movie
0: or attend the premiere. premiere. Yeah, yeah,
1: yep. Arnold's was come out to me have cigars and and like drink bourbon and ride around in a tank and I Already like, then. what amount of money do I have to enter <laughs> to realistically win this I've entered two in my entire life one was something Star Wars related and the other was the Arnold one and I sadly did not win either which yeah, that's a bummer I'm still
0: mad about that's that. a bummer <laughs> uh I do want to mention here just because I was I was going to mention the uh the blu-ray of this and I uh, did not get a chance prior to us recording this. There's some good uh, kind of behind the scenes stuff on the Blu-ray that they give on this. So along with your, you know, deleted and extended scenes, they do kind of have a, hey, here's how we were able to do filming inside of a tank and that kind of stuff. And that's something I do want to go back and watch. And then it it did kind of lead me to remember that we did mention where you can find Fury. And unfortunately, it's not up on Netflix uh, so if you don't own it or don't plan on buying it, I know you can rent it from uh, Amazon Prime.
1: That's how I watched it.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, and, and if, you know, I mean, there's other services that may or may not be available on, but in terms of the most popular things and things that we tend to reference, that's usually where you can uh, that's where you can get it right now. So uh, let's see. Oh, and my dog's flipping out over a car that's turning around. Uh, So I will try to talk over my dog. Um, As with a lot of war movies, uh, oftentimes the cast will uh, go through kind of a boot camp of of sorts to get them oriented toward combat and, hey, here's how you handle a gun and here's how you do this and here's how you do that. Uh, And a lot of it ends up being focused on kind of the time period. You know, there's not much sense in, in running uh, someone through what would be a, a modern boot camp when it's a World War II film. And, you know, the weapons are different and all that kind of stuff. So um, they did put them through that, which was uh, apparently led by some uh, some SEALs. Uh, so that was probably a, a cool, intensive thing for them to go through. The next item that you have here, Tom, I think is probably my favorite uh, item out of all this. <laughs>
1: It's so, David. Is it Ayer or Air? How do you uh, Air? I believe yeah. It? Air. He has has gone on record as saying he's at like a quote unquote ruthless director, uh, in terms of what he expects of the the crew and the cast and and what he's willing to put them through to to get the the desired authenticity. And here he was while. Fury itself is a a fictional story. I mean, it's, as we said from the top, it's inspired by a number of real stories like, you know, Audie Murphy. Um, These are all fictional characters and situations. He made the crew for some amount of time. I don't know how long eat, sleep, and even go to the bathroom in the, in a tank. I don't know if it was an actual Sherman. Uh, I, I didn't read that far into it, but you know, the, To to get the sense of what these crews would go through, and and on some level to bring the cast together, they're sitting in there. And I can only imagine, like, the thought that came to mind was, like, Shia LaBeouf is a weird enough guy normally. (laughs) But being in close (laughs) quarters with Shia LaBeouf, as he's, like, probably going to the bathroom in an ammo can or something like that, that's just, like... Mm -hmm. A whole other like experience, yeah, on a different order yeah. of magnitude. <laughs> well,
0: I my my thought was
1: he probably stares you right in the eyes and like does not blink the whole time.
0: <laughs> my, my thought was Michael Pena has a story of Brad Pitt taking a shit in a bucket uh inside yeah, the tank well, that... or something. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 interesting. It's interesting.
1: Yeah, but it paid off. I mean, they they like yeah. I I think the the performances. Is... I guess I would like to think, or I would hope for their sake, uh, you know, they, they were a little more authentic because of that. Yeah. Who knows? yeah.
0: <laughs> so yeah, Tom, like you said, all in all, a pretty good movie. Uh, one of the very few uh, tank movies that we have out there. So it it really kind of hit some things that don't uh, get focused on very much in a lot of other movies. So it's definitely unique in, in that regard. For our next episode we are going to go back in time uh, back to the Revolutionary War and we are going to do Patriot uh, starring Mel Gibson and uh, and also Jason Isaac as, uh, as I'm so excited
1: for this movie. That's like one of my favorite movies. You can pan it if you want <laughs> but this is one of my favorite war movies favorite Mel Gibson movie.
0: It, it is it's a fun movie it's a little long. Um, I, I think, it but is. It, it is a, it's a well done movie. It's, um, it, it, there, there's a lot of good action in it. There's some good story in it. It's, it's pretty interesting. So.
1: And more Jason Isaacs.
0: Yeah. A yeah. A lot more. So, uh, if anyone has any feedback for us, especially if anyone has, uh, if anyone's a, a, a tanker or, or used to be a tanker, mm-hmm. would love to hear from you and kind of your perspective on, uh, how, uh, armor was was portrayed in this in this film'd love to hear back from you uh, you can do so in a variety of ways you can shoot us an email to dispatches at randomcheddar.com
1: and if you have a story about your own story about shitting in a tank. You can find us <laughs> online to
0: share it. Or Brad Pitt shitting in a tank.
1: <laughs> you, you hit up the j- just the normal <laughs> random chatter account that because I would love to see that interaction on Twitter <laughs> at random chatter. Uh, yeah, <laughs> completely out of contact. <laughs> hey, by the way, Tim and Tom told me to show you this story. With you. <laughs> I I would <laughs> welcome. You can share it with me on Twitter at Thomas L Harper, and that's L is in Lee. And Tim, where the, where can they share your or their 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 shitting in tank stories with you? Uh,
0: I am easiest to reach on uh, on Twitter at Qui-Gon Tim. That's Tim with two M's.
1: And you can find all of our shows, as always, at randomchatter.com.
0: Uh We also appreciate you spreading the word and supporting us. Uh, the podcasts get you know kind of a lot of their listenership by way of word of mouth. So if you have other folks who are interested in the things that we cover, uh, particularly on this show, war movies. Uh, we have shows that do star Wars, Marvel, DC, uh, general pop culture things and, and more, um, please send folks our way. They can check us out over at randomchatter.com. You can leave us reviews, uh, for any and all of our shows, wherever it is that you find them, places like iTunes or Google play, uh, you can support us financially, um, you know, we, we try not to spend money out of pocket on on things. Unfortunately, for the last few years, we haven't had to. We've had some really good support uh, from folks. You can go over to randomchatter.com Patreon and uh, find out how to contribute to us there. It can be as little as a dollar a month, which, believe it or not, makes a huge difference because a lot of people give us a dollar a month. And so all that adds up and helps us to pay our expenses uh, for hosting and, and distribution and uh, and other things that we have to do. You can also uh, join us over on Discord to, to kind of continue some of the conversation over there. Uh, Discord is basically an online chat community. We have a variety of rooms set up. Uh, we do have some public access. So if you go to ramchatercom slash Discord, that will get you into our public lobby and our show channels, including uh, our channel for Dispatches. And we often, uh, after we release episodes, to get some, some pretty good discussion from a lot of our listeners in there talking about the episode and giving their thoughts on the film uh but we also have a lot of other channels uh which are uh, available to our patreon contributors so even just that dollar a month through patreon will unlock all the other channels dozens of channels across patreon uh, where we talk about everything from food to uh, home improvement to uh, movies in general and TV shows in general, we have spoiler channels, all that kind of stuff. So anything you might be interested in in the realm of pop culture and uh, really just life in general um, we we 've got it there we we talk a lot about it, so we definitely appreciate any support that you can throw our way. Oh, I do also uh, want to make a quick mention of our tea public store. If you go to com slash shop, that will direct you to T Public Store where you can pick up T-shirts, long-sleeve shirts, hoodies, stickers, pillows, uh, <laughs> mugs, all sorts of things uh, with uh, show logos on them. And while we don't have the dispatches from the front show logo up there yet... Uh, We do have a variety of other show logos up there, including our uh, classic Chattering Teeth Random Chatter logo, which is not only representative of the Random Chatter show, but also the entire network. the stuff on there is real high quality. Uh, the the cost is very, very reasonable. And every purchase that comes from there, um, some of those proceeds actually do come back to us. So you buy a T-shirt for, I don't know, $14, and like $2 of that will come back to Random Chatter. So that's a great way to support us uh, financially as well, along with showing showing off your fandom. So we we appreciate all of it.
1: And Tim, I'll tell you. Between you and me, I did my research on the the store, and they do have onesies. So yes, as they soon do. as we get a dispatches logo up there,
0: you know what my <laughs> daughter going to I love it. I love it.
1: <laughs> uh, it's time now for everyone's favorite part of every single episode. I love this. The legal disclaimer. I, everybody just we're just fast forwarding to get to this part. If we're all being honest with it's ourselves, true. and it's not just because the end is right after this either uh dispatches from the front is not endorsed by anyone affiliated with the films we discuss and is intended for entertainment purposes only although i would love to have shia labeouf's uh, endorsement on this <laughs> as weird as it might be all names associated with and references to the films we discuss are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective trademark and or copyright holders random chatter media and dispatches from the front are not affiliated with those trademark or copyright holders uh, David Ayer cannot order me to go shit in a tank, <laughs> thankfully. All original contact content of Dispatches from the Front is the intellectual property of random chatter media, unless otherwise indicated.
0: You know, I was going to, like, fake snore at the end of that, but you actually, like, you, you insert some fun stuff <laughs> into our disclaimer, uh, so, which I appreciate. It, it,
1: You know, whether it's me reading it in jar jar binks's voice or that you know it, it gives you something to look forward to it's the 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 sad little prize at the end of the cereal box yeah
0: yeah the one that usually breaks <laughs> within a couple hours of playing with it but, you know, That's right. it's all good That's right it's all good well thank you folks for joining us and we will catch you in a few weeks with Patriot. thanks again